0: The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.
1: Yeah, you're welcome along to The Sunday Papers. Joe Malloy, with you this morning and we'll start with the back pages. So the mail on Sunday, first of all, have Diogo Jota yesterday who was in fine form for Liverpool. They beat Southampton by four goals to nil. The headline is exceptional. Uh, Liverpool boss sings praises of Jota after Portugal striker lights up Anfield with a brilliant brace. So he scored two goals there. The first after just 97 seconds an exceptional player, an exceptional boy, said Jurgen Klopp afterwards. We have the Sunday Independent. Main picture is tyke Furlong being smashed by two Ulster players. Uh, Ulster came away with the spoils yesterday at the RDS. Yesterday evening, Ulster stopped Leinster in their tracks. It was uh, Stuart McCluskey in the main there, tackling tyke Furlong. First victory at the RDS for eight years. Ends leaders unbeaten run. And then the headline beneath that... Uh, Rangnick planning clear out in January, which sounded like quite a dramatic headline that Ralph Rangnick would be planning to clear out in January, although it seems really it's just Dean Henderson and Donny van der Beek who might be up for grabs. Jesse Lingard more likely to leave in a free at the end of the season. Sun Sport is not quite a few of the back pages. Ralphie Halland, so United want new boss to broker early Deal. In short here, it seems that Erling Halland will be available next year. There'll be a clause in his contract whereby he can be bought for 63 million sterling. Uh, Ralph Ragnick signed him previously and so they feel, Manchester United that is, that they may have an in with Haaland. Uh, similar on the back page of the Star, for instance, United will nick Haaland. I mean, if Ragnick allows them to get early in Haaland, it will be uh, well worth the six months regardless of how things go. The in is that he signed the striker for Orby Salzburg in January 2019 when he was sporting director. So there is a relationship there Sunday Times again we have Liverpool yesterday at Anfield second best they're second in the table Liverpool thrashed Southampton to trail leaders Chelsea by a point and then Keane to FAI whatever happened to winning this is Roy Keane he was speaking at an event on Friday for the Kerry Hospice Foundation and he was asked about Stephen Kenny naturally they're doing okay he said of Ireland and if okay is fine for everybody else in Ireland good luck to them along the line at top level football I thought winning was part of the package maybe I'm wrong football's about opinions Kenny has the Irish press on his side especially the Dublin lot but at the top level the game is about getting over the line and winning games and then the uh, Sunday world we're in good nick that's Michael Carrick we're in good nick ahead of the Chelsea match uh, fooling not money I think is the truth but uh, sounding a positive note there very have to say we have Dion Fanning from The Currency hi Dion Hey Joe how are you very well you're one of the Dublin lot Roy Keane's talking about by the that's way that's it Clina O'Connor All-Ireland football winner at Dublin now immersed in the world of coaching with us as well Hi Clina
0: Hi Joe. Hi Dion
1: So great to have you all with us Uh, Anything there on the front pages grabbing you I mean Ralph Rangnick is up for discussion we have Roy Keane on Stephen Kenny inside if you want to take the Roy Keane line on Stephen Kenny inside Paul Roan writes a follow-up piece Dion the FAI board meeting tomorrow for the first time in person in uh, well, well over a year anyway
2: And Paul suggests that what is most likely, and this I would think is most likely, is that there will be a, a short extension given to uh, to Stephen Kenny um, uh, to take him to cover the to cover, him, take him through to the end of the uh, Nations League, um, and there might be people who would feel that there should be a longer extension. Um, there might be I I actually for for. Uh, for what is routinely described as a kind of culture war now, and I can see, I can see the argument that says, you know, Ireland has been burned before by giving managers long-term contracts just before things uh, went belly up, and and they should be wary of doing that. Equally, uh, I don't think there's, I don't think there's many alternatives now. I think maybe wait, it's fine as long as you keep Stephen Kenny happy. I don't think he has. I this is a job he wants to do. If there were other alternatives for him, maybe the FAI would be thinking differently. Clearly, the way it has gone over the last few months has been very encouraging for for Irish football and for Stephen Kenny, Um, and uh, he is, in my view, the person who should be doing the job. I think Roy Keane, uh, his time is, you know, like, do we, we, I like every time we end up going over Martin O'Neill and, and Roy Keane and Trapattoni and Mick McCarthy over and over again on this. So, I don't think that's the point. I, it's worth doing that again. I think what I what what is happening under Stephen Kenny is far more exciting, um, and I think one of the things that is interesting in, in Paul's piece is that you know they're still looking for uh, a main sponsor. That seems to be something that should be achievable. Uh, With this squad with the the makeup of this squad with the fact that they have uh, players that are exciting that people are excited about seeing um and people are excited about watching the ireland team so um i think it's like you know again just on on the culture war thing it always strikes me when people bring up culture wars uh that there's somehow like the thing about an awful lot of culture wars is there is one side of the culture war that is actually (laughs) is right Um, like the culture war in 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 britain between leavers and remainers i'm afraid remainers are right they may become annoying and they may have very irritating placards when they go on their marches but they are right in the war in the culture war in america between trump and between the republican party and the democrats i'm going to tell you i you know the democrat the people who are opposing trump are right and i think when it comes to the culture war uh it's with stephen kenny People who want Stephen Kenny and believe in what Stephen Kenny are, is doing are right. Um, so I think this is, this is something that has to be embraced for Irish football. The alternatives, there are no alternatives. And uh, I hope you know it, it continues. I, at the same time, I think the contract is a bit of a red herring. I think it's something that doesn't really matter. But it's important that what Stephen Kenny does is, is continues.
1: And while we're getting carried away, Joe, Jason Knight reminds me a little bit of young Roy Keane. But while we're in full buzz at the moment, I think I'll just throw that in there and, and heap unnecessary pressure on the show. Subscribe
0: now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app.
1: Paul Rowan says that Chief Executive Jonathan Hill was putting the final touches to the report over the weekend. The board members expected to get advanced sightings of the findings, but all the signs are pointing towards Kenny's contract being renewed. The duration, as you said, is the potential sticking point. Kenny's contract runs to July, a little more than halfway through the UEFA Nations League campaign. And since the manager has set himself a goal of Ireland topping their group, despite not knowing the opponents involved yet, there is some suggestion that his contract be extended only until September, when the series of matches will be completed. Liam Brady and RTE is a prime mover of this idea. And... You alluded to this point that Paul Rowan makes, Dion. Since Kenny's agent is unlikely to be inundated with job offers, the FAI ha- holds a strong hand. Paki Bonner, the only board member to have both played and coached at a high level, will be listened to particularly closely, says uh, Paul Rowan. His views will inevitably help sway other board members, even though he uh, sought to play down the significance of his role recently when he said he was encouraged by recent progress. Clina, what's your read on all this and the notion of Extending Stephen Kenny's contract, but only until September.
0: I think the extension to September is probably the compromise, really, isn't it? Because managers and coaches, and, and even players, you want a bit of certainty that okay, we, we've time and we're, we're being given the back end and the confidence to go and continue this process. But I think, given everything, um, and DM's point about not getting stuck with long term contracts, which has been problematic in the past, I think that the safe option and the compromise is to extend it and is to see how the nation need goes and see if the the current form and, and progress and the I suppose the expectations that Stephen Kenny has said himself about top in the group if they transpire and if they do then you're probably in an even better position as Stephen Kennedy, Kenny to, to negotiate a continuation then if if the summer goes well because mm. it all bodes at the minute it, it all suggests that the summer will go well so i think in some ways he, he might do better just waiting and renegotiating and then at the end of the summer
1: and do you think dion it undermines him too in a sense so there's almost a degree of the jury is still out you're still on trial here
2: but i think you're always on trial as international manager i don't think like this is this you know from both sides of the argument i think this is this is the uh the issue with um, international football in particular, but also a manager like Stephen Kenny, who probably is always having to answer um you know the criticism or this, you know, dealing with stuff that like he, he is this a, is this a step up for him, is this a too a step too far for him? Whatever. All that kind of stuff that comes with an appointment from within the League of Ireland, if you like. And I think that doesn't go that does that go away because uh, you give him a long-term contract, does it mean that people won't... They won't ask about a contract because he'll have it. But if Ireland lose the Nations League games um, in in June, then people will be saying, oh, why have the FAI given this guy a long-term contract? So I don't think... The, everything as an international manager is kind of framed by that. That's why I felt even when Ireland lost to Luxembourg, it was important to... You, know, you could criticise Stephen Kenny, but actually you very quickly get into a situation where you're saying, well, the manager has to go. Like it's very hard to criticize, like football and international football, especially, like it is, it is it's not like other jobs. Like this comes back to, you know, we might talk about Manchester United in a minute, but when people would say, oh, you know, Gary Neville can't, you know, it'd be wrong to, from the call for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to be sacked. Sacking a manager is is, is, part, of the, is part of the managerial process. In football. It's like, you know, it's like it's it's not it's not like a normal job. So when people talked about Stephen Kenny in Ireland and look and after the Luxembourg defeat, that was kind of the thing that was that was the logical end point of a lot of the criticisms was well, we'll just get rid of this guy Mm. and try somebody who isn't gonna do this. So that always is there. I'm afraid that's always part of the of the debate for for an international manager. Yeah.
1: That September offer does catch the eye, although further down in the piece, Paul Rowan does say, however, there doesn't appear to be any appetite for extending the trial period any longer, unless the FAI's poker face chief executive strongly re- recommends such a course of action. So maybe that does intimate that actually they don't want the next eight, nine months to be a case of, well, do we give them a contract? Do we not give them a contract? So maybe that suggests a longer term deal. Either way, we'll find out tomorrow. Maybe we won't find out. The board certainly will have their uh, meeting tomorrow. So that's page 10, judgment day. The headline on Paul Rowan's piece. Clean, I'm sure you were curious to read the Jim Gavin interview on pages 14 and 15 of the Sunday Times. I must be totally honest, when I saw Dennis Walsh interview with Jim Gavin on the front page of the Sunday Times, I thought to myself, well, best of luck, Dennis, because nobody's cracked it yet, really. I would say this was a very, very uh, good effort. We got a, a glimpse behind the curtain a touch more, I think.
0: I think so. I, and, and the same as yourself, when you see it at the, on the front page in the header, you think, oh, God, that's a, a bit of a surprise because it's not usual. And the, the interest is, well, what is he actually going to say? And is he actually going to say anything at all? So I, I was pleasantly surprised. And I think, I suppose, for me, you got a little bit more or a little bit more sense of... Um, I think jim's general approach and the general principles it's it's nothing we didn't know uh but i just think some of the very basic principles that jim gavin would have used as a coach and in coaching in general they seem very very simple and i mean when he, i think because he didn't give so he didn't give a lot away when he, he was managing the footballers everyone thought there was these big big secrets about how it was done but like one of the key things, and it's, it's used as the heading of the piece, is if I shouted at a player to get in position, then it reflected how per, how poorly he'd been trained. So everyone talked about how Jim was so silent on the sideline and he didn't give anything away. Yeah, because he felt that you know the job was done then. You go out and 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 that was a, a key theme in this piece is how to how to prepare players. You you put in boundaries, you put in structures, you put in principles of play. And then you go and let them play and your job then isn't to talk them through everything. Um, and I think that's really important. It's really important. It's it's such a basic premise of coaching, but it was such a key, a key tenant, I suppose, for him. Um, I think that was, that yeah. was a, a key piece. Um, and the other bit then that, uh, that came out as an important piece for him was that idea of the just culture and how we lent on aviation for that, that everybody's going to make mistakes at some point and And that's, everybody has to be able to report mistakes and talk about mistakes and deal with them without finger pointing, without ego, without defensiveness. And then if you have that within a culture and within a team, in, a, in any environment, it can become incredibly productive. So I think it seems like Jim has a couple of little, um, how would you say, nuggets or things that he is, he is now willing to share, uh, those sort of principles of how he approached things when he was coaching.
1: Yeah. Certainly, the reporting on mistakes. A lot of it is based in his time in aviation. You're legally obliged to report mistakes in aviation, and he almost wanted to take that culture into the GEA setup. That you know, we're operating here on the basis that mistakes will happen. We just need to dive deeply into why they happen and to make sure they don't happen again. Because on the the point you you know you, you jumped in first on his point about uh, if I'm screaming at a player to get into a position on the field, and that's a reflection of how poorly they've been trained. Because Dennis Walsh does point out that Jim Gavin won 90 percent of his Dublin matches, but about a third of those games were decided by a goal or less. So mm. he does write, there must have been days when his heart rate changed, but we were guessing, you couldn't tell, there were no jerky movements. And Gavin says, it's not that I was emotionless. I wasn't harbouring any useless emotions. There is a difference. Of course you have emotions. I mean, the game is in the balance. What I was taught as a young man learning how to fly an aircraft is that if the engine goes on fire, you essentially sit on your hands and you observe what's happening and you methodically deal with the emergency. And so that's probably an insight into what was going through his mind when he was watching so many of those matches, which did go down to the wire. I mean, what jumped out to me, and, and Dean, I'll bring you in in a sec, is the attention to detail and the preparation. So for instance, the All-Ireland uh, final day 2019, Jim Gavin and his management team, the day before the All-Ireland final, I don't know we're opposition doing this, to be honest. So the day before the 2019 All-Ireland Final, Jim Gavin and his team get together to plan what happens if there's a replay. So what were the odds? What did that matter? Writes Dennis Walsh. The plan wasn't a skeleton one either. It had flesh and a pulse. So on the morning of the All-Ireland Final the next day, the players not in the matchday squad were put through a training session on the understanding that a replay might never happen, but it might involve one of them. Dean Rock obviously kicks the stoppage time equaliser that takes it to a replay. The plan then goes into um, effect Extra masseurs had been stationed in the stands at Crow Park. As soon as the final whistle blew, they made their way to the Dublin dressing room. Each masseur had already been assigned their list of players. Hot food and ice baths had been on standby. They arrived in Crow Park on command. A pre-prepared text message was sent to the parents of all the players. The post-match banquet had been postponed, but Dublin GA would still like to host them for dinner at the team hotel. The players would be eating in a different room. Their all Island suits would be left hanging untouched. The train was still moving full speed. Now, I don't need, no, Dion, I have my doubts most teams weren't preparing that methodically for an All-Ireland uh, final, but there you go. That was a really interesting glimpse, I think, behind the scenes.
2: Yeah, no, there's there's a load of um, fascinating stuff. I did think that the line about the uh, engine failure in aircraft, I did kind of find myself reading that wondering if maybe Jim Gavin could go into politics in Ireland because... Uh, you know, there's a line where he says the last thing any of us would want in an aircraft that had engine failure is the captain screaming down the public announcement system, "The engine is on fire, we're all going to die." And I was kind of thinking that seems to be how you know Irish government is being led these days. You know, panic as a as a government as a lever of of, of a policy lever. Um, but on the uh, general point, no, I thought that was a fascinating that oh, the opening of the interview about the the replay. Um, and the preparation for that was really, you know, it does tell you that the preparation and, the, and again, and also you would you, you could argue the resources that Dublin had available have available to them or had available to them, but um, it, it does go to this kind of endless, you know, this restlessness and this quest for perfection that Gavin seemed to bring to everything. And I know from, you know, talking to Paul Flynn, who's been doing stuff with with us of the currency and Paul recently interviewed Gary Keegan and they talked about this and you know all these all this kind of uh, curiosity Gavin had about like just finding an extra bit of an an extra percent or an extra value in performance somewhere along the line and in that piece with Gary Keegan I remember, uh, um, uh, um, you know he said Paul said that. You know, one of the things they used, like mindfulness and meditation and things like that. This was an area Gavin was really curious about, but he didn't know how much extra value it would give you, but he was still was prepared to put an awful lot into it because he felt it, it might do. And again, that's a bit like this preparing for the replay. Who knows what those preparations, in case of something that might not happen, would give you, but he's still prepared to put an awful lot into it. Mm. And uh, And again... And also that thing, and I think this is fascinating about Jim Gavin compared to maybe an awful lot of the people who might come along and try and imitate Jim Gavin, in that there was a huge amount of trust in it. So like he has this line, you know, there's an in it where he says one of the leadership hard rocks is that to gain control, you have to give control away. And that's about trusting the players. And again, uh, this is something that's touched on in the interview, like with, with, with Gaelic footballers, you're also dealing with people who have jobs, who have, you know, there's an awful lot, there are other elements of management in an amateur sport than there are in a a professional sport. And Jim Gavin seemed to be very um, intent on getting that trust and get that culture then where you could, were happy to acknowledge those mistakes like you do in aviation, came from people feeling trusted. Um, And I think probably a lot of the time, people who come along, they saw the control of the Dublin team. They saw the control that Jim Gavin would have over those players. And lesser people would see that that's a question of keeping holding onto control tightly. Mm. Whereas his thing seemed to be actually let it go a bit, trust it and it will come back to you
1: there's a point here in Gavin's final year Stephen James Smith the Dublin poet playwright and spoken word artist gave a performance for the squad at the end of the show he shared his email address a handful of Dublin players got in touch what emerged from that contact were poetry workshops it wasn't for everyone but that wasn't the point another door had been opened talks about the Saturday training if the team trained at 9 or 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning Gavin would be there at 7am wouldn't leave till after 3 in the afternoon In in that block of time though he knew what he could accomplish he was talking on that point about how he divided his time out. And he does say, if we were doing this professionally, you'd probably still be in the job. But the reality is, in an amateur framework, you still have a career. There were a lot of sacrifices and there were choices you needed to make. In terms of the cycle of the team, I felt it was best to hand the baton on. on. So it is interesting, he says, look, if I was a professional, I'd probably still be in the job. And I suspect the reason for the interview becomes apparent towards the end. He played in the recent uh, European Seniors Tour Pro-Am Paul McGinley invited him up to Donegal and uh, he won. And so the outcome of winning is that he qualified for the Legend Series in Mauritius, which is part of a glittering 10-person field. includes Keith Wood, Robbie Feller, Gordon Strachan, Gavin Hastings, Andrew Strauss, amongst others. Paul McGinley told me to get the head down and start practising. Gavin took it as an order. He began to work with two instructors, one for a short game, and on weekends he started playing with his 86-year-old dad, Jimmy, at Craddockstown Golf Club. In three months he has knocked a staggering five shots off his handicap down to 11. The Legend Series, it's a charity event. It's in Mauritius next March. Gavin will be playing for his share of a 100,000 euro pot. His nominated charity is Dieter MND, the foundation set up by his late friend Anto Finnegan to support research into motor neuron disease, the condition that claimed Finnegan's life a few months ago. Whatever he wins in Mauritius, it's Gavin's plan to at least match it with a GoFundMe page on his return. Another mission, another plan. Five shots off his damn handicap. I mean, that's the most impressive thing in this whole article. So, Kleena, uh, do you have um, poetry recitals in your various teams? I mean, where are you here on the, the Gavin experimentation spectrum? Yeah,
0: poetry and orchestral workshops and watercolour painting <laughs> and all sorts. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it's part, part, of the, part of the whole process of, uh, I don't know, getting to know players and letting them to be a little bit more than uh, footballers. And, and so those four or five players or whatever who went to followed up with the poetry workshops. So that, So that's... That's four or five players who are engaging, connecting, doing something different uh, together. That isn't football, but getting to know each other. So I think that anytime you can do that with players, we're always encouraging you know so- socialise together and be be cohesive as a as a uh, as a team or as as peers. And I think the, the traditional way to address that is uh, let's go for a few drinks after a game or let's go for a round of golf. But there that this is an example of very individual and creative ways of creating that cohesiveness in the group, Try and tap into other interests.
1: Yes. And I, and I think as well, Kleine, it shows a wisdom in his part. I mean, the go for the drinks after the training session of the match. Tradition is a good one in lots of ways. And people loosen up and talk to each other. But also people have an inner life and people have a longing for different types of pursuits and something like poetry will probably really engage four or five as you said, players, and that will be a really interesting pursuit for them, and it's a very uh, modern way of thinking. But I think an enlightened way of thinking on his part.
0: I think so, and I think like one of the things is, and Deanne, you mentioned about Paul Flynn talking about uh, Jim's curiosity. I think he's a very open-minded person, mm-hmm. um, and and very wi- like willing to explore and try. And doesn't make me better if I know what my ultimate goal is is to run a successful football team with with happy and content and, and successful young men well what contributes to that and if that's poetry so be it if it's mindfulness so be it like whatever it is if it if it serves our purpose and makes us better then then let's explore it nothing is sort of off the table and in many ways it's so simple but we forget about it and even your point about the the preparation for the replay like all of that stuff having massages straight after the game good quality food like all of that is very simple principles of recovery but who would have gone or who goes to the effort to make sure it's ready to go that you can ju- it's an organizational thing mm. so that the knowledge is there but it's about putting it in the putting in the effort to to build the system that can use the knowledge very very efficiently and effectively
1: yeah well it was this weekend 2 years ago that he stepped away so mm. he's uh, still flying recently promoted it said in the Irish Aviation Authority so uh, not surprisingly his career is continuing to progress so that's Jim Gavin pages 14 and 15 in the uh, Sunday Times Dion you were curious to see the coverage of Ralph Rangnick Manchester United's new manager after uh, this afternoon when Michael Carrick takes them to Stamford Bridge he reads as yeah. a very impressive character he
2: does um, no he is he is a very impressive character I, uh, I'm i struck by um, you know, like the thing I, fi- I find the current Manchester United uh, structure quite fascinating, um, and you know there is a general general acknowledgement that they have they have arrived at a, a, a good decision here. You know, and like the Rob Draper in the Mail on Sunday, the headline on the piece is he wouldn't sign Ronaldo, avoids picking tattooed players and falls out with owners, but Ranić is still the man for United. Um, Now there is a kind of, um, I suppose you might qualify as a recency bias but uh, uh, there is a a sense when something new, uh, journalism is kind of addicted to something new and we always want something new and I wonder how many headlines and stories like that were written when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer became permanent Manchester United manager. I imagine again there was a, a sense of euphoria around uh, around his appointment, given the circumstances when it happened. And um, so that is just a, a natural thing to happen. Um, but what I'm struck by um, is for an interim manager, a guy who's coming in for six months and now there will be a consultancy uh, role after that, whatever, whatever that really means. Um, like I just struck you from the Jonathan Norcroft piece in the Sunday Times, it says, you know, for, it says he uh, he blew competitors such as Ernesto Valverde and Rudy Garcia away. He captivated a panel led by Ed Woodward. That would be a that would be a warning sign in my book. But uh, he he did captivate that panel anyway. And then he said, you know, uh, Ranieri awaits work permit clearance to begin tackling a fascinating brief. Six months as United stand in coach, followed by two years as as a consultant. He's, he is being invited first to mend the club's football, then move from workshop to design room and produce a blueprint to prevent it from getting broken again. Both are steepling tasks in their own right, yet Ranjik's unique history suggests he might just pull them off. That's an awful lot of stuff to get through in six months. There's a hell of a lot of stuff to get through. Mm. Um, and it would suggest, you know, this would make more sense if you were saying, right, he's here for three years, um, which he may be. And again, you know, it does suggests that you know the, the story on the front page of sun independent that they're going to let players go, go on his behalf he's remodelling the squad and um, eric ten hag is mentioned as a more likely um manager when when Ranić steps into his consultancy role than Pochettino. so he isn't coming in really as an interim like this maybe they are they are betting on him to a, a bigger degree than just saying do this job for six months to buy us time because the the scope of what he's been asked to do is much greater than that yeah so and that's the thing that strikes me
1: same as i hadn't hadn't fully appreciated that that either so Ragnick is getting the job for six months but he is also as dion says staying on for two years as a consultant and by all accounts blew them all away on the tuesday so He's actually going to be around here and on the scene for a long time. Now, Northcraft writes that there's Darren Fletcher as technical director. There's uh, John Murta as a football director. And so it gets a bit crowded with Rangnick being I'm not quite sure what. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. But he is going to be a big part of Manchester United for the next two and a half years now. And I hadn't realised either. Chelsea offered uh, Rangnick the manager's job when Frank Lampard departed. He gave what uh, Northcroft says is a sparkling... I mean, boy, can this guy do interviews. A sparkling 90-minute uh, interview with Peter Cech and Marina Granskovea. But they wanted him for only four months because they wanted go long-term. So Rangnick uh, stepped aside. He told me, I can only congratulate Thomas and Chelsea for their choice. So he is going to be around for two years. On the, the Ronaldo headline and the tattoo headline, I thought, wow, this is interesting. To be fair, the context is the Ronaldo point was when he was at Leipzig and his point was, well, we can't bloody afford him and we're about team as opposed to individuals. And also, I mean, he did say Ronaldo was getting too old then, and that was back uh, six, seven years ago. And on the tattoo point, he says, I'm not signing the players with tattoo. If I say it's a coincidence, this is not quite the truth. For the style of football we play, again, this is at uh, Leipzig, we need team players. We don't need players who, after they score, the only thing they're interested in is pointing to their name and celebrating with themselves in front of the supporters. They should at least celebrate with the guy who gave the assist and he said, of course, this is not necessarily to do with tattoos. But then we need to discuss why do people have tattoos all over their body? It's got to do with being exceptional and trying to attract attention. I'm not I'm not asking a player before we meet, show me your body where you have your tattoos. Maybe some of them have to, have to, have tattoos and at least they don't have them where you can see it everywhere. I mean, geez, he's in the wrong industry, cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. But it's interesting. I mean, he's clearly a fellow with very strong Opinions and very much about the team, and like in both the the Northcroft interview and the piece by Rob Draper, there's mention of this sort of mutual plan for when we have the ball. Team players, he's celebrating with the guy that gave the assist. So this sense of everybody working together, um, and even when he talks about himself, he's um, when you know he's sort of challenging the idea that he isn't a team player. Um he is saying that uh, I am a team player, I know my reputation is different, but it's just not true. He admitted being single-minded in his roles with Hoffenheim and during initial phase in Leipzig, but only because the owners asked me to bring the clubs to the highest possible level as soon as possible. And therefore I could not just wait for things to happen. But we all achieved, but what we all achieved was a result of a team that worked together. So it like I think that's that's really important. And you're saying about where if he's there for three years and all these other people who are already there, um, yes, he wants to be a team player, but he's not going to sit around and wait for things to happen, which is maybe where controversy and, and a bit of the challenges will arise. But having said that, I mean, sometimes you just need somebody to, with that single-minded approach, I suppose, to, to not accept anything other than you've asked me to change, you've asked me to to bring this thing forward, so we're going to do it. And simple as not, not just sit around and talk about
1: it. The thing I'm really it, fascinated he, in is he's, by all accounts, I mean, he's been one of the real architects of Gegenpressing. He's a hero of Tuchel. He's a, uh, or sorry, to, yeah, he's a hero of Tuchel. He's a hero of Klops, an inspirational figure. I mean, Ronaldo and high pressing just doesn't work, Dion. And that's going to be one of the initial things which is going to be fascinating to watch.
2: Yeah, well, I think there's, there's a number of things in that because Manchester United in the Ed Woodward era have pursued. Um, the individuals and they've pursued names uh, over a kind of team philosophy now they kind of uh, rolled back on that a bit during the sort of, for a point during the Solskjaer era but then it was turbocharged again in the summer when they signed Ronaldo and you know, I don't know how much Solskjaer had to do with that it was a kind of um, it, it was a signing made by the kind of United family if you like and um, uh, I don't know if I um, like this will tell us an awful lot about where manchester united sees itself because you know we have a story uh on friday i think it was that you know a number of the united players were unhappy that they hadn't received a whatsapp notification letting them know that ranic was was going to be their new manager onto into the whatsapp group now maybe there is there is probably a communication issue there too but there also it will it will say a lot about the uh the power structures and the empire, the empires that have been built within Manchester United. If Rania comes in and tries to do what he wants, what he tries to do at every club he's at. So, if he can do that, the people are going to have their noses put out of joint, and people are going to feel a little bit challenged and threatened. But if he can't do that, it will tell you again that there is something. There is a there is a different structure and a different kind of. Uh, model in play at United um, and that maybe it isn't isn't for a manager with a kind of overarching philosophy like Ranić's.
1: Yeah, you'd increasingly start to wonder then who it is for. So, Clina, we had Jim Gavin at 50, Padraig Carrington turned 50 in August, page 11, 12, 13 and 14 of the Sunday Independent. He's uh, reflecting on life more so than golf with Paul Kimmich. I mean, he tries to reflect a lot on golf. Kimmich tries to drag him back to life, I think, is the tone of this. I mean, I was, I, I when I saw the interview advertised last night, I thought, well, we're going to get a review of the Ryder Cup year and get behind the curtain on what happened across mm-hmm. the Ryder Cup year and across those few days. It's not really that at all. It's a far more philosophical chat.
0: Yeah, it was It was refreshing, to be honest, um, from that po- point of view. Um, and as you said, I think, I ha- ha- in some ways, Harrington seems a little bit uncomfortable, even at the start, trying to go bring in golf references and, and Paul keeps, keeps pulling them back, pulling them back. No, no, we want to talk about being 50 in life and, and all of, as you said, the philosophical stuff. Um, I, I thought it was nice. It was, it just seemed, you get, a, I don't know, I, I, you finish it and you think that you get a real sense of, of a steady person. Mm. So someone who's an incredible sports person. But really, really steady and grounded. And one thing that really struck me was his—he was talking about his lifestyle with his wife and his kids, and and how they seem to have made it work, um, and that they they really understand what the lifestyle is. He's he's uh, talking about—I um, think they bought they bought an apartment, and he spent the week cleaning it. At the end of it, he's like, "Well, I'm never doing that again." And and his wife was like, "Yeah, you're not." Get out, you know, go back to the practice screen because, you know, rather than pretending that he's something he's not, and he's describing other people, you know, the golfers ringing their partners, saying, Oh, I'm having a terrible time and they're on tour. And they're probably not, probably having the time of their life. But understanding that what it, what it is to be a professional golfer and how you make that work as a career and the longevity of his career. And he's talking about his kids and saying that, uh, you know, yes, he is away, but when he's home, he's home and he's there and he's doing everything for them and not justifies it, but says sometimes, you know, he thinks he spends more time with them and there's a better connection than somebody who's going to work at 7am and coming back at 8pm. So he he just, to me, seems somebody who's very content with how he runs his lifestyle Hmm. um, and how he's running his career.
1: There's a point with Harrington I always find fascinating. I remember chatting to him when he was isolating in a hotel in the States when he'd been diagnosed with COVID. And so it was a good spell alone in a hotel room. And I remember asking him, have you been reflecting on things, you know, turning 50 this year? Have you done some writing or got a journal out or put down some thoughts or anything in that vicinity? And I remember being surprised, he said, no, 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 I don't. I don't ever go too deep in my head. And this is a man who will spend hours thinking about the depth of the grooves on his wedge. You know, he will pick golf apart to an insane degree. And I've always been struck by the fact he doesn't seem not interested, but he seems wary of examining himself in great depth. And this comes up again over the course of the interview where Kimmage asks, have you thought about who you are? Now, again, you would anticipate that somebody with Harrington's mind would say yes. I've really thought about who I am and my place in the world and what I'm about. But he says, no, definitely not. I'm not a person who, and then it's dot, dot, dot. And then he goes off t- on a tangent. He says, I turned down any sort of open top parade when I won the majors. I don't like that side of things. And Kimage says, that's not what I asked. Who are you? And Harrington says, I don't know. You're here to figure that out. I mean, that's a dangerous proposition <laughs> if you want Paul Kimmich to figure out who you are. I, I'm not signing up for that uh, routine. And Paul said, uh, you said you hadn't thought about it. Harrington says, no, you said definitely not. Harrington says, I don't want to think about that stuff that can complicate your head. I'd rather do than think of the greater scheme of things. Like it fascinates me with my golf, that, dot, dot, dot. Paul Kimmage interrupts. We're not talking about golf and Harrington says, but this applies to the mental side. And Kimmage says, no, no, golf. When is the last time you did something that was really disappointing? When's the last time you hurt someone? And Harrington says, "No, I can't think of anything." So going back to the golfing analogy image, I don't effing want you to go back to golf, which is an insight into the interview, I think. But that has always struck me about Harrington Dion—that his, his deeply analytical mind doesn't particularly want to examine life the way he examines golf, or certainly himself. It's not that he's not a deep thinker, but it's always struck me about him.
2: Yeah, it's I was like, this is this is an exceptional piece. Like it's. You know, it, I, I, don't, I see it like it is everything both of you said about like in terms of an insight into Harrington, but I also think it's, it's a conversation, between, it's an ongoing conversation between two men. Like, you know, and it is, it is like, you know, you say you had your, like, I, I'm, I'm not a keen follower of golf, Joe. So like when I saw this first last night, I was like, oh, Paul Kimmich is interviewing uh, Paul Harrington again. Like, w- like, why would you do that? again and like I couldn't have been more wrong about that because like the beauty of this is that he's doing it again and there is this deep conversation between two people and as you say you know Harrington saying to him that's up to you to figure out like you know that's not that comes from as you know the, the, the 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 comfort and the trust of you know having had these series of conversations and this ongoing uh relationship and you know and i like there is that thing you know like i find that when you interview somebody sometimes especially if they go very well the first instinct i have is i i'd like to interview them again right now Mm. because now i actually feel i've got all the questions having done the interview i've got all the questions i would actually now like to ask again and uh i think this is what you get in this interview there's two people kind of Dealing with mortality, dealing with death, dealing with, you know, ageing. Um, and, you know, it is it is it is an interview with Harrington, but it could only be done in this kind instance by, by somebody like, by, not somebody like Paul Kimmage, but by Paul Kimmage. Um, and I do think, like, that is, it is fascinating how, like, I love that as well. The thing you both talked about, how Kimmage keeps taking, you know, I don't want to talk about golf. And again, there's a confidence in that, you know, like here, I'm going to go and take, I'm going to do an interview. And, you know, it's in the sports pages and it's headed golf. And it's like, I don't want to talk about golf. And we all know that like these people are more interesting when you get them onto things that aren't, you know, necessarily the sport they want to talk about. And Kimmage is dragging him, kicking and screaming into other areas. And it does remind me, Harrington, in that that there is the great line in, in the Philip Roth book, American Pastoral, is when he talks about this uh, the guy who was a sports star, the Swede, who was a teenage sports star when, he, when the Philip Roth character was in school, and he realises when talking to him that he has no reflective gene. He has nothing, that he doesn't actually reflect on his life, and he has this great line where he says, irony would be a kink in the swing for a guy like the Swede. you know. And that's sense of self-reflection. That's kind of, you know, that's for losers, you know what I mean? The idea that you would agonize and fret over yourself and who are you—that's what—that's what drags you down. And now Harrington has managed to do that in terms of his golf game without ever, like you know, Tina mentioned uh, the cleaning story, which is very funny. But there is also there in terms of uh, you know the birth of his children and uh, you know the like you know uh, Harrington uh, you know he missed the first uh, birth of his first child because he was in America. And he said, I was there for Kieran until Caroline's contractions got shorter. I said, You know what? Your sister would really like to be in here. I'll go get her. <laughs> and Susie went in. There are some things I have no interest in seeing. Uh, you were there and you ran out. Kimmich says, Oh, yeah. Why would I want to go through that? Why would I want to see that? it's And Kimmich says, It's all about me. No, not at all. You didn't want to see your son take his first breath. What, what your wife had to go through? Why would I want to see what my wife had to go through? Now, <laughs> that that you know there, the, the number of people that may be something that people actually look and go. That, that is a very unreconstructed approach to life that a man would say I don't want to be here. Um, but it is it is actually providing an insight into Harrington uh, in in many ways and actually and it, and his refusal to engage with that is is as insightful as if he sat there and talked to you about his life philosophy.
1: Yeah. Because it, later on, when they are talking about mortality, and he, he was saying, I'd rather have a good 70 to 80 years than a bad 70 to 90. It's about quality of life. And he, Paul Kimmage says, what about God? And he says, you know, for somebody who earlier on says he doesn't like to reflect on himself, there is huge self-awareness there. Because he says, well, if you go to bed and don't wake up, your death's like a light switch. You don't need faith. But if you have a slow death and you have to think about the end for a period of time, it's difficult if you don't have faith. So as disturbing as my father's death was to, he- to us, it wasn't to him. And that's because of the time he put into his faith. And then he's asked about his own faith. And Harrington <laughs> says, and I wonder how many people would admit this. I wonder how many people would admit this. I think I absolutely believe in God because it's convenient for me to. It's convenient for you. Yeah, I couldn't handle thinking about the alternative, so it's easier for me to believe. It makes my day to day life happier. The alternative would drive you mad. So it's convenient not to overthink it, um, which is interesting because it's not, we, you know, it's not like you see, he's such a deeply intelligent man. It's not like he's saying, oh, I don't think about me or I don't think about life because it's never occurred to me. And oh, look, there goes a butterfly. It's more I think he's reached the conclusion that going too far down that path is just dangerous territory. And this is a man who spends a lot of time in hotel rooms and flying and has obviously made just almost a determined effort not to get too wrapped up in that stuff. And there's probably a wisdom in that.
0: I think you've probably hit the the nail on the head there, Joe. I mean, the title of Don't Let the Old Man In seems to be very apt. He's talking about competing with younger players and staying active and, and wanting a, a good 70 to 80. So he'd, he'd forego 10 years of life if he felt that they were going to be miserable. Uh, he doesn't want to, to see his wife in pain giving birth, even though he loves her and, and his children. But he, he doesn't, as you write, it seems to make a conscious decision. I don't want to engage in that because it's confusing and it's painful. And I'm a golfer and I'm going to play my golf and think deeply about my golf and have a great career and have a, a happy, secure, steady lifestyle. And what is the point in drawing all that confusion on myself? That seems to be his his perspective because you're dead right. I mean, he's he is reflective and intelligent and seems to have made that decision for how he wants to live his life. Now, maybe when he's 60 or 70, he might think a little bit different. And I do like his bit about about uh, about religion, because it's convenient. Yet yeah, when we're all a little bit scared, Jesus, we'll all believe in God then. Mm. Uh, but but other than that, we'll, we'll, we'll just belt away with our normal lives. But I, I, I just think, as you said, the um, it's more of a conscious decision n- not to think too deeply about mortality.
1: And where are you in that? Do you uh, keep the more philosophical thoughts at bay or do you go down that route?
0: To be brutally honest, that that type of stuff, um, it's something I wish I had a better handle on because I would be the same. Mortality uh, scares scares the hell out of me, to be honest. And I haven't figured out a way to to think about it without going down the rabbit hole of, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? And and, and what's it all about? And am I spending my time wisely? That's a big question for me. Am I spending my time wisely? So I, I get at Carrington, and, oh, we'll just stick to the day to day. And especially when you work in sports, it's all about being fit and healthy and active and what can you do tomorrow and what did you do yesterday? So that that keeps you very focused on the here and now rather than thinking about what's the point of it all. Hmm.
1: Dion, we don't know each other especially well, so I don't want to suggest I'm coming at this with some uh, profound knowledge of you. I have you exactly. more the opposite to Harrington. I think you are asking the questions a lot.
2: Uh, yeah. Um... <laughs> I, yeah I guess I probably I I would have um and uh yeah but I think that's and that's not necessarily um a good thing I think it is like there is there is you can ask these questions and then you can get into uh into a rabbit hole mm. in terms of what you think about uh life and yeah at the same time there is there's some con- I think there's always some consolation in in things you discover that you consider are the truth you know or like observations or uh, uh, bits of knowledge that actually feel like that 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 is that is the kind of you know human experience but that is the human condition and um they are the kind of consolations you find but i i don't joe i don't sit around you know thinking that uh, you know we're uh uh you know think god death is death death is only around the corner i like to go there uh, Steve Martin used to close his 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 concerts used close, to close his live shows with with the line we've had a wonderful time here tonight considering we're all going to die someday and uh, that's that's what i like that's that's my that's my philosophy
1: okay uh, well so that's Porter carrington page 11 sunday independent uh, so the footballing uh, front we'll get to the FAI Cup final in a moment I know there's been lots of great coverage in advance of this game Courtney Brosnan page 66 of the Mail I think Courtney Brosnan's a really interesting player right now in Irish football because I would say her position is uh, speculated on a good bit she made a high profile mistake in the last campaign which was costly for Ireland got away with the big mistake on Thursday did get away with it and has new competition coming in for that goalkeeping position and uh, she's talking to the media about trying to juggle all of that
0: I found this I found this interesting Joe being you know from a goalkeeper's perspective as well albeit in a different sport but reading her interview with uh, in the mail with mark Gallagher, I it seemed like someone who was trying to figure out how do I deal with the inherent pressure of being a goalkeeper? Um, because at one point and, and in a team who are trying to improve and beat better teams and, and those games can be won on one nil on one shot at goal. So, so your action in a split second as a goalkeeper, like it or not, can have a massive impact on your team when you're trying to move up through the ranks. Um, and, in some way, like it's a bit of a conundrum. In some ways, she's she's talking about, you know, you have to accept that mistakes are going to happen and um, and and kind of be okay with that and not not let it um, restrict you or or hamper your confidence. And I get all that I and mean, that's true. But the other point is, they do matter at this level and they 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 can be very very costly. So it will be interesting because, um, as you said, there's. A, uh, Megan FIFA now cleared Megan Walsh to yeah. to join the squad, who's very competent and one of the high, highly rated female goalkeepers. So, I think that will be that will be a big challenge. Um, and for if somebody who's trying to figure out how do I how do I play with confidence and own the position, and all of a sudden there's this new new distinct competition coming into the pack even though she's stating it's great to have competition it'll push us on I think if you're already struggling a little bit that that might be a big challenge so it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out but at the end of the day I mean that team um, need need the most solid keeper at the back for where they're at at the minute
1: Yeah because I felt sorry for Dion in a way it can't have escaped her attention that the FAI have put a lot of effort into getting Megan Walsh's FIFA clearance over the line over the last while and she had made a big mistake in Kiev against Ukraine and then more recently had played two very good matches against Sweden and Finland and had been good in the friendly as well the month before that. And you thought, okay, maybe she, you know she's uh, over the hump of the mistake or mistakes last year. And then against Slovakia on uh, Thursday, uh, Mark Gallagher says it It was noted she was static and should have been more decisive for the Slovakia goal and then she was only spared by Louise Quinn's superb intervention on the goal line when she lost focus and kicking the ball out it was a really heavy touch and basically gave away a goal but for Louise Quinn getting back and saving the day and so suddenly you're back to square one and you've got Megan Walsh arriving and like I said I had sympathy for her because that's really really difficult and she talked about being at West Ham and working extensively with a psychologist to deal with the pressure that pressure is now unrelenting for her she tries to keep that number one jersey
2: it is and um you know you like in in mark's piece and there's you know pieces with her in in a lot of the papers today but in mark's piece it says you know well while we were sitting in castle knock hotel news filtered through that megan Wall should finally receive fifa clearance and of course then brosnan you know she has to she has to say the things that she says about but she doesn't have to but uh you know it's it's kind of standard to say you know we it's i it's great to have competition and all that kind of stuff but it would considering the context it would put her under uh more pressure and i i thought it was interesting too the vera pow comments after the game where she uh you know she's she made it now it's, it's probably more to do with the outfield players but she did suggest you know individuals are going forward and think they can run out of the organization and this is what you get. We have to learn that you cannot just do your own thing. So there, uh, whether this is Vera Pow thinking, because you know, uh, myself and we were talking about this earlier. Like it's 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 not like her to say that kind of thing, but whether she feels is the team can handle that kind of, uh, you know, jolt, that kind of public criticism, or whether she's feeling the pressure herself, um you know who knows like you know the kind of the conventional wisdom again is that you don't say that kind of thing but it would also suggest that with megan walsh coming in that there is going to be you know it's going to be hard uh to keep your place with a keeper of that renown coming into coming into the reckoning now
0: like what you want as a goalkeeper, you want certainty and predictability, mm. you know, and, and, and any type of uncertainty around a goalkeeper. Oh, God, will, will, will they make an error? They, they, every now and then so, something happens, a costly error. That, that's terrible with the team. And mm. even the, the language and the coaching around that person can become now if this, everything gets a little bit edgy. So that is, you definitely don't want a goalkeeper who makes anybody nervous around them. Um, so, if there's if there's a, a potential person to step in that is is steady and is predictable, then I, th- I think it will it will be a challenge for Courtney Brosnan to keep her spot.
1: The FAI Cup final on this afternoon, St Pats against Bowes, two Dublin sides, two sides with a rich tradition and history, and that's probably been reflected in the coverage all week. I think I know you mentioned David Snade's piece from yesterday, Dion has been maybe one of the best ones that you've read across the week. Dan McDonnell has a great conversation here with Stephen O'Donnell and Patrick Craig, so manager and assistant at St. Pat's. And I hadn't realised, I'm sure it's well known within the League of Ireland, but this is a lifelong friendship in effect, which started when they were two 12-year-olds waiting on the flight over to London, attracted by the Arsenal dream that would bring Liam Brady to their house and make their childhood a ticket to the future. Patrick Craig is a dub, parents from Sligo, Stevie O'Donnell, Galwegian with a father from Donegal and a mother from Louth, And so they are in a conversation here with Dan McDonnell. Craig kick starts a nostalgic discussion with his abiding recollection. I remember his ma introducing us and then Stephen going mad at his ma, he smiles. Why was I hammering her? O'Donnell replies, his memory blank. You just told her to shut up. She was like, this is Stephen. And Stephen O'Donnell says, I was trying to be cool. I was the culture with the dubs, and there was probably a little bit of insecurity. The Dublin lads would be the cool lads, the lads that know the score, and it was preconceived they would be better. You had to win their approval. They were seasoned pros at 12. I was probably saying, ma'am, I'll introduce myself. I don't need you to do it. And so on they go. O'Donnell head coach of St. Pat's with uh, Craig, living away from his wife in Scotland as his assistant. And Steve O'Donnell brought him back in more recent times. But they talk at length, Cleaner, about their time together. At Arsenal, you get lots, lots of nice insights. I mean, I, I, it's it's a, a twofold really. On the one hand, they loved being there; the atmosphere was amazing. They make the point that the top lads, as in the big Arsenal players, they don't need to be big time. They were such good people; they were secure in themselves. Talks about the likes of Martin Keown and come and talk to them. Then three weeks later, he'd forget the conversation and come back and have the same conversation with them in the canteen, Ray Parlour. Uh, Sol Campbell was the friendliest. I told him I was from Galway, the West Coast, and he said. It was one of his bucket list uh, jobs to get a camper van and drive around the west coast of Ireland, something you wouldn't have expected from Saul Campbell. We'd see Dennis Burkamp at the tube stop. Vieira was a nice guy too. They talked about Wenger being calm. So they loved being around this amazing team as youngsters. They also, though, give a real sense of regret. It was pizzas every night and walking by the gym. Yeah,
0: I I really enjoyed this piece, actually, and the, the start of it. The, imagining the two year twelve-year-olds playing a cool on the plane to England, giving out to the hands, I just thought it was brilliant. You know, you can imagine them looking at the ground, quiet man. You know, <laughs> um, but it, it was a lovely story, just an insight into life and football, and not not in the the, the glorious heights of managing Manchester United, but uh, League of Ireland and the relationship of these two two guys, all that they've been through, and and I guess. Looking back on the opportunities they had in Arsenal, you rightly said that they're. Thank God, if kind of if if it's one of those, if we know if we knew then what we know now, we'd have given it a better shot, or yeah. we'd have we'd have made done things a little bit different. Which is just life. I mean, they were, and that's the point, isn't it? They're made made later in the piece that at twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, people are too young to really understand what they're doing. Um, how can you expect? it's only the rare teenage boy that would be able to deal with all that and make really good choices at the end of the day you're you're a youngster in in an incredible environment um i just liked it as as how their relationship has developed and i suppose the the reality of soccer coaching and moving around and, and um you know, Patrick Craig is here because his mate is is asked him to come, and he's moved away from his family, and he loves soccer, and he wants to he wants to work with his mate. Like that's that's the essence of it. It's not because of a massive paycheck or anything.
1: Hmm. Dion, this uh, piece is, uh, as I said, part of I think a wider coverage this week that I can't quite remember in advance of an FAI Cup final. I think. Yeah,
2: it's um, like it's a very good um, moment for for you know, domestic football in Ireland, there's going to be 38,000 or maybe even more at, at the game today. Um, uh, There are a number of pieces, I, like Tommy Gorman was writing in, in The Currency about it, David McWilliams was writing in The Irish Times about uh, the opportunities, you know, people um being turned off, like the, the commercialised world of the Premier League and this being an opportunity for the League of Ireland. I think there's a couple more there are probably other factors in that i think mcwilliams touched on it too you know that um and tommy that about you know brexit and players won't be going abroad uh you know until there there won't be 12 year olds going to england uh under because of brexit you know so there is going to be a change there are going to be more of these players developing in ireland um and i think there is a there is a great appetite for live sport at the moment because of the last couple of years. And that's reflected in people, you know, going to this game today. Um, And it's great then that the coverage, that there has been an understanding that this game at the same time needs to be sold and you need to give people something that means they're going to invest in the game. Um, And Dan's piece really does that. David Snade's piece, like, I would say David Sainsby's not it's not just one of the best pieces of the weekend, it's one of the best pieces of the year. Uh the piece on the 42 yesterday was a really, really outstanding piece just because of the the concept of it walking through through Dublin with uh Chris Forrester and uh, and Keith Buckley and you know the 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 the, the characters they meet during it, it was just exceptional, but both pieces also managed to pull off something. Which is quite hard to do, which is interview two people uh, at once and get their stories and intertwine their stories. And again, like I think Dan's piece, it is it is apt that it does begin with this you know the, the, on the plane to London because you know we have for so long seen that as the pathway. and that is you know that is where you're going to succeed. And once you don't succeed there, you are a failure, you know, and everything then that comes down after that is somehow you trying to kind of, uh, recover, you know, the opportunity. And again, you know, the regrets they have, um, about what they did, as Kleena said, like it's so hard because you are your, your kids, like your kids put into this situation. You're also kids. Um, and you know, it's getting, it's even more and more competitive. Your kids brought being brought into a hot house, a worldwide, uh, experiment to see mm. who can survive like it isn't like it is it is such an impossible task now to make it uh as a as a premier league player well it's um, it's
1: interesting even craig towards the end uh, he cuts in when steve o'donnell's talking about that whole theme and how it's going to change in the league of ireland and 12 13 year olds going over this is right at the very end and Craig cuts in, ah, it's a shambles. You're not ready. You're not educated or mentally developed. It's not until later in life that you realise it. There is this sense of going over too young, not ready for it, and then trying to rescue your career.
2: Yeah, and I was always struck over the years by the players who stayed, stayed in Ireland a little bit longer um, and the confidence... But, there's, you know, there's no, there's no, you can't say that's why they, they succeed. I remember John O'Shea talking about that and John O'Shea stayed in Ireland to do his leaving... Uh, before going to Manchester United and um you know it's one story and yeah. you know God, that worked out for him but um it's it's like um it's a desperate world i I don't think i would want like how how can you resist it on one hand like if arsenal or manchester united or liverpool say you're going to uh we want you to come and play for us You're going to take, but you're you're basically, you're buying a lottery ticket, Mm. but you're except the difference is you're actually altering the course of your life
1: Mm.
2: on the base, on the purchase of a lottery ticket. You're saying, I'm going to drop everything else and just clutch this lottery ticket. And this lottery ticket is my, is my way out. And your chances aren't much better um, than, than, than that. Um, And it is, it's a brutal, it's a brutal existence and it is better for like i think this 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 hopefully this the cup final today is the start of like there are two clubs that have done an awful lot within their communities uh, are are really exemplary in terms of and they're not alone like you know again sligo rovers tommy wrote about them at the like the, the, a lot of a lot of clubs a lot of league of ireland clubs have have appreciated this and i hopefully this is now the start of um something even bigger for for League of Ireland because um, there's going to be a huge crowd there today. And then the next thing is making sure that people come back because I think if there's one thing sometimes the League of Ireland uh, fails in, it is in actually saying it is up to us, or or there is a a faction within the League of Ireland that that makes this failure. It is up to us to get these people to to the to 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 engage with the teams. Yeah. Um. It is not up to you know. It is not the failing of the of the Irish football fan if they don't if they don't see this. It is up to the clubs and the, these clubs have done that. Bowes and St Pat's have really invested in their community. Like they have uh, fan bases that are are really committed. Um. It needs to grow. It needs to you know. It will be great if it grows. Now, the, the other question is, do we? So, like having said that maybe we like we're always asking what more can the league of ireland do maybe like one of the things that struck me about these pieces especially david's piece is like this really tight community um that you experience this like now you know especially in the in the dublin football sense like it is a story of dublin football that interview and who you, you know the, the encounters and the fact that it is such a small world mm. um And that is a very important thing too and that's a precious thing and maybe it's fine like that but i think there is a lot more i think there's a huge appetite for football in this country and you know what the attendance today shows what what can be done and hopefully it continues
1: yeah absolutely clean as a a last one i don't it's a long time pre-men's all ireland football or hurling finals that you'd get this kind of coverage predominantly because the setups now are just so wary of the media you get your media day and that would be it and you get a lot of the same quotes so the coverage here I mean how, what would you have gone back 10 20 years till you'd see something like this on the morning of an All-Ireland final at least
0: uh, definitely definitely um, and yeah because because people aren't I suppose in the GAA now we, we're not Embracing those personal stories, and we're 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 it's it's been limited, you know. And and in some ways, people don't ask the questions because they know they're not going to get the answers. So now, with with a sport in Ireland that's that's growing and there's interest in it, and and there's obviously the people involved are committed to trying to open the doors and let people into it. Then you get an, an eagerness to to talk about your Yourself and to talk about the actual reality. People are a little bit more open when they want to kind of encourage people to engage. I think, like you would have seen that with even women's football a couple of years ago. there's definitely been a shift in in how people, how players and coaches talk around women's football now. Yeah, it's tightened before up. Before they were a lot more open. It has tightened up.
1: Yeah. Very good. Well, listen, guys, we didn't get to everything. We're just out of time. But thank you so much, Clean O'Connor, and All Ireland. Winner with the Dublin Footballers Now very much a coach Immersed in the world of GEA And Dion Fanning Associate Editor At The Currency Thanks so much guys Much appreciated The Sunday Papers
0: On Off The Ball